Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater, and this midnight I will tell you the tale of the Borden Tragedy, Part 6. On Tuesday, June 20th, 1893, Lizzie Borden was acquitted. The courtroom erupted in cheers, and many, including defense attorney Andrew Jennings and Lizzie herself, broke down in tears. It was later revealed that the jury's vote of not guilty had been immediate and unanimous. They did not look at the pieces of evidence gathered for them. For propriety's sake, the jury had decided to wait a full hour before returning to the courtroom with their decision. Lizzie was taken into a room where she received well wishes and congratulations from the many in Fall River Society who had supported her throughout her long ordeal. Among them was her uncle John Morse, brother of Andrew's first wife Sarah, John Morse had not attended the trial after his time on the witness stand, and after this one moment after the verdict, Uncle John Morse and Lizzie Borden never met or spoke to each other ever again. He had been Andrew Borden's closest friend, Whatever John Morse thought about the events of August 4th, 1892, he never told. After this victorious reception, Lizzie stepped out of the courthouse and smiled with joy as she saw the throngs of people waiting outside to see her off and wish her well. She finally stepped into the carriage that was to take her back home to 92 2nd Street in Fall River, but Lizzie refused to let the carriage move until the long procession of men and women could pass by and hold her hand. Mothers held up their babies for Lizzie Borden to kiss. Lizzie said to the reporters, I am the happiest woman in the world. She was finally free. Lizzie and Emma returned home. 
to the house where their father, Andrew Borden, and their stepmother, Abby Durfee Borden, had been brutally murdered by a person or persons unknown. The new maid Emma had hired let them into the house. Bridget Sullivan was now long gone from Fall River, and town gossip said that she had moved back to Ireland for good. But Bridget Sullivan will enter this tale once more before its end. George Robinson the theatrical lawyer who had so successfully argued the case for her defense during the trial sent Lizzie Borden a bill for $25,000, which would be almost $700,000 in today's money. Lizzie was reportedly very shocked by George Robinson's fee, but personally... I think he earned every penny of it. And Lizzie and Emma Borden were now very wealthy indeed. Andrew Jennings, the other defense lawyer who had actually been a friend of Andrew Borden and Emma since his boyhood, refused to ever speak of the Borden case again. Andrew Jennings put all of his notes and records of the Lizzie Borden trial into a tin bathtub in the attic of his house, and he sealed it. Jennings left instructions in his will that the contents of that tin bath should never be shown to anyone, and to this day his descendants have honored his wishes despite many pleas from the Fall River Historical Society, whatever Andrew Jennings had in his records of the case, what he thought, what he felt, remains a tantalizing secret, one of many. William H. Moody, who had been the head of the prosecution in the case against Lizzie Borden, received a gift from her a few weeks after the trial ended. It was a scrapbook meticulously made by Lizzie herself, containing newspaper clippings from the time of the murder's discovery up through the end of the trial. The scrapbook also contained copies of the now infamous photographs of Abby and Andrew Borden after they had been killed. Lizzie Borden sent this handmade scrapbook to William H. Moody with a brief and somewhat cryptic note saying that she thought he might like to have the scrapbook, quote, as a memento of an interesting occasion. On May 11, 1893, several weeks before her trial began, 
Lizzie Borden, in prison, had written in a letter to a friend. You know, my life can never be the same again, if I ever come home. She was right. It never would be. Kara Robinson, a legal historian and expert on the Borden case, said in the 2005 History Channel documentary The Strange Case of Lizzie Borden, quote, The elite that had rallied to her support during the trial pretty much cooled to her in their enthusiasm as soon as she was acquitted, simply because they did not want to see her convicted of murder does not mean they wanted to invite her to tea. On the first Sunday after Lizzie Borden was acquitted, she returned to the church she had attended faithfully for most of her life, where she had taught Sunday school to immigrant children and been active in charity work. When Lizzie sat down in her customary pew that Sunday, she noticed that every pew surrounding hers was suddenly empty, their regular parishioners sitting elsewhere. The Society of Fall River had made its own judgment of her, and they had decided unanimously to cast her out forever. Lizzie Borden stayed for the rest of that service on that Sunday, and then she never returned to the church again. Emma Borden, however, was still respected and welcomed by Fall River Society. She continued to attend church regularly, although other than that she mostly stayed at home with Lizzie. Emma Borden continued to wear mourning black for the rest of her life. Lizzie did not. Most people in Fall River said, Poor... Emma. It is understandable that Emma and Lizzie would not want to stay long in the cramped house where their father and stepmother had been murdered. By the end of the summer, Lizzie had purchased a 14-room mansion on the hill. The elite Fall River neighborhood Lizzie had dreamed of living in for most of her adult life. Lizzie bought it, and she and Emma moved in. Lizzie named the house at 7 French Street, Maplecroft and she went so far as to have that name inscribed on one of its stone front steps. This was seen by Fall River Society as being presumptuous, calling attention to her wealth as the proper high society of the town would never do. Lizzie Borden 
also changed her name, although she never did it legally. But it also was frowned upon by the Fall River upper crust. From the summer of 1893 until the end of her life, she was known as Lisbeth Andrews Borden. In 1897, Lisbeth Andrews Borden was in the newspapers again. She had stolen two paintings from an art store in Providence, Rhode Island. Lizzie's kleptomania, which had been an open secret in the years leading up to the murders, persisted throughout the rest of her life. The newspaper headlines gleefully exclaimed, Lizzie again! The matter was resolved privately, and it was later revealed that Lizzie paid for the stolen paintings, much as her father, Andrew, had done for her when Lizzie had stolen items from Fall River shops in her younger days. However, this scandal did nothing to endear Lisbeth Borden to Fall River High Society. The $5,000 reward for discovering the real murderer of Abby and Andrew Borden was never claimed, and no other suspect was ever questioned or charged with the crimes. Around this time, the children of Fall River began to sing a murderous nursery rhyme about Lizzie Borden in the schoolyards. They have never stopped, really. We're still all singing it. Lizbeth and Andrew Borden became increasingly more alone in their house on the hill. Lisbeth Borden once said to a reporter, quote, I would give every cent I have in the world and beg in the streets if it could only be proved while I live that I did not kill my father and stepmother. Over the years, there has been much speculation about Lisbeth Borden's sexuality, and there is much evidence in the historical record that suggests that she was a lesbian. In a letter written to a female friend in 1897, Lisbeth Borden wrote, My dear friend, where are you? How are you, and what have you been doing? 
I dreamed of you the other night, but I do not dare to put my dreams on paper. If there is any other logical explanation for those words, written in the Victorian era from one woman to another other than a same-sex romantic relationship, I do not know what it is. In 1902, Lisbeth Borden traveled to Boston and saw the actress Nancy spelled with an E, not a Y, Nancy O'Neill, who at the time was regarded as the American version of Sarah Bernhardt. Lisbeth loved the theater, and she became enamored with Nancy as an actor and arranged a meeting. Not long after they met, Nancy's manager brought a lawsuit against her, and Lisbeth went to the courtroom every day of the trial, showering Nancy with gifts and assisting with her legal expenses. After the lawsuit was over, Lisbeth began bringing Nancy O'Neill to Maplecroft in Fall River. Emma Borden did not approve of her sister entertaining an actress. Theatre folk were not considered respectable in polite society, and it brought more unwelcome attention from the press. But perhaps there was something more to Emma's displeasure than that. But we cannot know for sure. Victoria Lincoln writes in her book, A Private Disgrace, Lizzie Borden by Daylight. The murders were twelve years behind them when Lizzie one night threw a tremendous party for Nancy and her whole company. There were caterers, hired palm trees, an orchestra for once. Maplecroft fulfilled its intended function as Lizzie must have imagined it when she bought it. The house blazed with lights from top to bottom and blared with music. The night of Lisbeth Borden's party for Nancy O'Neill at Maplecroft in June 1905 was the final straw for Emma Borden. She left the house that night, and the sisters, Emma and Lisbeth Borden, who had lived through so much tragedy together, never spoke to or saw one another ever again. Emma Borden moved to a modest house in Providence, Rhode Island, and later New Hampshire, where she lived in anonymity for the rest of her life. The newspapers, of course, loved the story of sisterly rivalry. Whatever the nature of Lisbeth Borden's relationship to Nancy O'Neill, it ended not long after Emma Borden's departure. In 
Nancy was, after all, a working actor, often required to tour the country and the world. Nancy admitted that she wasn't good at writing letters, and without that, the relationship between her and Lisbeth Borden, whatever it was, faded away. Nancy O'Neill eventually gave an interview about her time with Lisbeth Borden, saying, Of course, the tragedy itself was never mentioned between us. Never was there so much as an allusion to it. That made not the slightest difference to me. I want to make that clear. She had an unmistakable air of refinement and intellect that I found distinctly attractive. Lisbeth was exceedingly well-read, conversant with the best literature, and spoke interestingly of her travels abroad. With her intellectual quality, she combined kindness and thought for others and a great fondness for animals. I felt a great sympathy for her and a great deal of admiration for the way she carried on. She was always so alone, so utterly lonely. Author Victoria Lincoln, who grew up in Fall River and knew Lisbeth Borden when she was a young child, writes in her book A Private Disgrace that her mother would sometimes say of Lisbeth Borden, Poor thing, poor thing living alone in that big, ugly house. What a hell! Victoria Lincoln also remembers one poignant aspect of Lisbeth Borden in the latter years of her life. Quote, Lizzie always rounded off some little maxim or old-timey phrase with the words, as father always used to say. In an interview for the Boston Herald newspaper in 1913, Emma Borden finally broke her silence for the first and only time, responding to another lately published newspaper article marking the decade that had passed since her sister's controversial acquittal. When asked about Lizzie's reportedly, quote, queer, or in the modern sense, strange, behavior after the murders, Emma Borden responded with ten years of pent-up emotion. Queer? Yes, Lizzie was always queer. But is she guilty? No, emphatically no. 
Despite our estrangement, I am going to do my duty in answering the cruel slanders that have been made against her both in public print and by gossiping persons who seem to take delight in saying cruel things about her. Time and time again, she has avowed her innocence to me, and I believe her. Here is the strongest thing that has impressed me of Lizzie's innocence. The authorities never found the axe or the implement or whatever it was that figured in the killing. If Lizzie had done that deed, she could never have hidden the instrument of death so the police could never find it. Then Emma turned to the circumstances that had caused her to leave her sister's side forever. The happenings at the French Street house that caused me to leave I must refuse to talk about. I did not go until conditions became absolutely unbearable. Then, before taking action, I consulted the Reverend E. A. Buck, who had been for years the family's spiritual advisor. After carefully listening to my story, he said it was imperative that I should make my home elsewhere. I do not ever expect to set foot on the place while my sister lives. Emma Borden then went into haunting and devastating detail about what happened before her mother died when Emma was just 12 years old. When my darling mother was on her deathbed, she summoned me and exacted a promise that I would always watch over baby Lizzie. From childhood to womanhood and up to the time the murder occurred, I tried to safeguard Lizzie. I did my duty at the time of the trial, and I am still going to do it in defending my sister, even though circumstances have separated us. Every Memorial Day, I put flowers on Father's grave, and Lizzie does not forget him. The vision of my dear mother always is bright in my mind. I want to feel that when mother and I meet in the hereafter, she will tell me that I was faithful to her trust, and that I looked after baby Lizzie to the best of my ability. You must understand, I have always been, and I am still, the little mother. At this point, Emma Borden broke down in tears, and the reporter quietly left her alone.
with herself. Several years before her death, Elizabeth Borden wrote in a letter, and she said, Believe that you can make a difference. In fact, you do it with every choice you make. Your money is your power, and each time you spend it, it's a vote for something. So make it count. Elizabeth Andrews Borden put at least two neighborhood children through college with her own money and gave generous physical and monetary gifts to extended Borden relatives. As has been mentioned, she also loved animals and buried her beloved deceased dogs and cats in a pet cemetery around a gravestone that read, Sleeping a While. We cannot know if she killed Abby and Andrew Borden or not. But if she did, I would personally argue that she paid for it, even if she was acquitted. The entirety of Fall River ostracized her, and yet she refused to leave town. It was her home, and the fact that she stayed there all those years after the murders speaks to her strength of will and purpose, if nothing else. And until the end of her life, she never stopped trying to do good for others who were in need. I do not say this to either absolve or condemn her. Even with all the historical documentation we have, Lisbeth Borden remains out of our reach. Her innermost thoughts and feelings are closed to us. But I do as Victoria Lincoln implores in the first chapter of her book, A Private Disgrace, see her not as the monster popular culture has made her, but as a human being. And I try to understand her, to understand the history and preserve the things that are known to be true and not the myth. One thing that I feel very comfortable personally saying is that if Lizzie Borden did indeed get away with murder, she did not do so alone. The people closest to her at the time, Emma Borden, Dr. Seabury Bowen, Alice Russell, Bridget Sullivan, and Adelaide Churchill, they all either lied on the witness stand or held things back. 
That is a matter of the historical record. It is a fact. Adelaide Churchill said to a friend in Fall River named George Wiley, quote, There is one thing I saw in the house the day of the murder that I will never repeat, even if they tear my tongue out. Bridget Sullivan eventually returned from Ireland and settled in Butte, Montana, where she married a man named John, who also had the last name Sullivan, and Bridget had several children with him. When Bridget Sullivan was old and gravely ill with pneumonia, she asked her friend, Minnie Green, to come over quick. Bridget Sullivan had a secret to reveal before she died. According to Minnie Green, and only according to Minnie Green, Bridget Sullivan said, that she had always liked Lizzie Borden. Bridget had always taken Lizzie's side in all the troubles of the Borden house. That was why she had helped Lizzie out at the trial, although Bridget maintained she had not said a single word that was not true. And Bridget said Lizzie was thankful to her, and Lizzie's lawyer told Bridget to go to Ireland and never come back. Bridget Sullivan said she promised not to say a word about it after she took the money. Bridget Sullivan died on March 25th, 1948. She was 79 years old. In 1926, Lisbeth Andrews Borden went to the hospital to get her gallbladder removed. She registered in the hospital under the alias Mary Smith Borden, and the hospital staff kindly pretended not to recognize her. Even then, the entire world knew her face. She never recovered from that operation. Lisbeth Andrews Borden died of pneumonia just as Bridget Sullivan would die 21 years later on June 1st, 1927. Lisbeth Borden was 66 years old. In her will, Lisbeth Andrews Borden's largest bequest was to the Fall River Animal Rescue League, 
She left them $30,000, equivalent to $593,000 in today's money, because the animals, quote, have so little, have so few to care for them. Lisbeth left $500, $10,000 in today's money, for the perpetual care of her father's grave. She gave other generous bequests to other distant family members, but Lisbeth Borden left her sister Emma nothing, saying, quote, She already has enough to make her comfortable. Lisbeth Borden was also very specific about her grave's location. Quote, I wish to be laid at my father's feet. The funeral of Lizzie Borden was held at Maplecroft, her dream house on the hill. She had made provisions in her will for the most elite members of Fall River Society to be invited to her funeral, and they all came. Nearly all of them had never set foot in Maplecroft before, but for the funeral of Fall River's most notorious citizen, they all came eagerly, dressed in their best black. When all of Fall River's high society arrived at Maplecroft for the funeral of Lizzie Borden, they were informed that Lizzie Borden's funeral and burial had actually taken place the night before with no mourners and no witnesses. Then a contralto came forward and sang Lisbeth's favorite hymn, My Ain, My Own Country. Lisbeth had loved the song so much she inscribed one of the mantelpieces of Maplecroft with the words, At home in my own country, which is exactly what Maplecroft was to her. That was her own country, at last, in the end. Lisbeth Andrews Borden also specified in her will that she wanted only the first and fourth verses of the hymn sung at her public funeral. Those words are, I am far from home, and I am weary after whiles for the longing of home and my father's welcome smiles, and I'll never be full content until mine eyes do see the golden gates of heaven 
and my own country. So little know I can. O yon blessed bonny place, I only ken its home, where we shall see his face. It would surely be enough for evermore to be in the glory of his presence in our own country. And then the shocked kings and queens of Fall River High Society were told to go home. Lisbeth Andrews Borden orchestrated a final victory against the friends and the society that had supported her at first and then cut her off in silence. Lisbeth Andrews Borden got the last word. On the day Lisbeth Borden died, her older sister, Emma Borden, was ill and fell down the stairs of her house in New Hampshire, breaking her hip. Because Emma Borden was in the hospital, she was not even able to attend her little sister's funeral. Emma Lenora Borden died nine days after her little sister Lizzie on June 10th. 1927. Emma Borden was 76 years old. In Oak Grove Cemetery, the entire Borden family is together now. Andrew Jackson Borden, his first wife, Sarah Anthony Morse Borden, their daughter, little Alice Esther Borden, who died young, Abby Durfay Gray Borden, Andrew's second wife, is buried on the other side of him, Emma Lenora Borden, the faithful older sister, and finally, Lisbeth Andrews Borden, the suspected, acquitted murderess. The skulls of Abby and Andrew Borden are buried at the feet of their beheaded bones. Today, the house where this bloody Fall River tragedy occurred on August 4th, 1892, is a bed and breakfast, restored to exactly as it was 
on the day Abby and Andrew Borden were slaughtered. Everyone says it's haunted. Of course it is. Next time we meet, I will continue this season of unsolved mysteries with the tale of the Hinterkaifeck Slaughter. If you enjoy the podcast, I encourage you to leave a rating and a review if the spirit moves you. You can also like Going Dark Theatre on Facebook. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to episode transcripts and other spooky projects I'm writing, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month. I am your host, Josh Hitchens, and you've been listening to Going Dark Theater. Until our next midnight together, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now, going.